Hey guys, welcome to Liquid Church Online. I'm Pastor Tim. It is an honor to be in your home today. I am so glad you joined us for our special series, Friends of the Family, because we are hearing from some world-class preachers who are friends of our church family right here at Liquid. And I can't wait for you to enjoy this today. I am so excited to introduce my good friend, Pastor Rich Velotis. He serves as lead pastor of New Life Fellowship in New York City. Now, New Life Fellowship is an amazing church. It's actually a large multiracial church in Queens with more than 75 countries represented. And Rich is a New York guy through and through, but I'll warn you, he's a Mets fan. So people like us Yankees were like, can we mix, man? It's okay, even Jesus hung out with sinners. We can still call him a friend. I think Rich is a, um, one of the most insightful voices in our generation on the issues of justice, race, and the gospel. In fact, his first book, The Deeply Formed Life, releases this September. I've already pre-ordered a copy. I would encourage you to get it. He lays out a compelling vision for breakthrough that really includes a fresh spiritual approach to pursuing racial justice in a deeply divided world. And today you're going to be blessed by his biblical clarity that he brings to this vital conversation. So church, let's give a big liquid welcome. Come on, light up the chat, everybody, for my good friend, Rich Velotis. Come on out, Rich. Great to have you, my brother. And a socially distanced fist bump it is. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Well, Tim, thanks for the invitation, the kind invitation to be with you. I have been following your church for a number of years and have been so encouraged by your generosity, your creativity, just the missional energy that really flows through this community. And so to be here uh, on this day is a real privilege, a real joy and an honor. As Tim mentioned, I have the privilege of pastoring New Life Fellowship Church in Elmhurst, Queens. It's a beautiful congregation in one of the more diverse areas in the world. Uh, National Geographic has said that our zip code at one point was the most diverse zip code in the world. 123 languages spoken at the nearby hospital, 75 nations represented in our church. To take out $20 at the local ATM uh, is a dizzying experience as there are often 20 options to choose from in terms of languages. And so it's a compelling, confusing, uh, wonderful experience to be among so many different people from around the world. And the beauty of something like this, being a church like this, is that we get to be a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is going to look like in its fullness when Jesus fully and finally reigns. But at the same time, we experience the tensions that exist in the world. That is to say, whatever tensions are out in the world find their way into our church. And so in our church, we have both Black Lives Matter uh, advocates and we have Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter congregants. We have folks who are uh, uh, pro-Donald Trump and folks who are never Trump. We have folks who are Mets fans and Yankees fans. I mean, that's where the divide really happens in our church. And so uh, regardless, we are trying to embody something of the kingdom of God. And so we are in a moment in our history, a moment in this country a moment in our own lives and in our churches where we're trying to navigate so many different things at one time. We are in a pandemic. And beyond the pandemic that we are in, there are racial justice issues that are uh, uh, coursing through our veins and through our society. And we're trying to figure out how do we navigate through it. And so I want to preach a message today out of a very familiar passage of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke. And there's a story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. And I think this story really can frame what it means to be a people who work for justice in a world that's often marked by injustice or marked by apathy and indifference. I think God has something to say to us. 
And so in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, I want to read you a story. It's 12 verses, so I want you to stick with me, stay with me here. But it's an important verse, an important passage of scripture to orient us in the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus says in this text. Luke writes, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it uh, written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul, with your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked himself, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Lord, thank you for the gift of scripture, uh, the gift of your word that comes to us, that encourages us and challenges us. And so open our ears so that we may hear what you want us to hear. Open our eyes so that we may see what you want us to see and open our hearts that we would receive every gift from the Holy Spirit you long to give us this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a popular story that's told about a guy walking down the street when he falls in a hole. The walls are so steep that he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts out, hey you, can you help me out? The doctor writes the man a prescription, throws it down the hole and continues to walk. A lawyer comes along and the guy shouts out again, hey you, can you help me out? And the lawyer looks down and says, we are going to sue whoever did this to you. Here's my business card. And he continues to walk on. Then a priest comes along and the man shouts, Father, I'm down in this hole. Can you please help me? And the priest writes out a prayer, throws it down the hole and continues to walk on. Now this fictitious story is an accurate portrayal of much of our world and many of our lives because like the characters in this story, we all have a tendency to remain distant from some of the uncomfortable life situations we come across. The interesting thing about much of human relationships and much of our human relationships is that we spend so much time avoiding pain. 
especially the pain of others. We tend to avoid it because to move towards this person means I have to deal with my own issues in my heart. Deal with the difficult emotions that I tend to run from. Deal with the frustration that others carry. And so because this is a lot of work, we avoid giving uh, the illusion that all is well. But in our text today, we're reminded that the gospel is a story that speaks to how close God is to the powerless and how close God is to the poor. And this is to comfort us who feel powerlessness and to challenge us who have some power. In our text, we find a scandalous and a shocking story. A story about love, a story about justice, a story about mercy. And what I want you to hear is this, because God is close to the poor and powerless, God's people should be too. When we pick up in our story, Jesus is approached by a lawyer. Not a lawyer as we know it. He's more like a Bible scholar, a religion professor. And this professor comes up to Jesus to give him a pop quiz. He's trying to trap Jesus. He asks Jesus a very simple question. What must he do to inherit eternal life? Now, whenever you decide to give Jesus a pop quiz, be careful. Because he has a way of turning tables in a subtle but brilliant way. This professor asks the question and Jesus responds with a question, which ultimately turned the table around in terms of who was in control of the conversation. And it's quite humorous how he does it. Eugene Peterson tells of a story about Elie Vassell, a Jewish novelist and writer on spirituality. And Vassell was interviewed one day and the interviewer said, I've noticed that you Jews often answer questions by asking another question. Why do you do that? To which Vassell responded, why not? And so in this story, Jesus and the professor go back in a kind of theological table tennis. And as they are volleying back and forth, it seems as if the professor has got Jesus beat. The professor feels like he has Jesus in the corner. He has Jesus stumped and he did it by asking a question. And who is my neighbor? And Jesus takes out his secret weapon that dismantles all attempts at argumentation. And Jesus basically says, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to tell you a story. And listen to the story Jesus tells. He says that one day a man was going down Jericho, which is a dangerous road. Think of it as Camden, New Jersey. Think of it as East New York, Brooklyn, the place where I grew up in. Think of it as the South Bronx. Or think of it as a wealthy neighborhood in the suburbs of New Jersey, which might be dangerous for black and brown people to walk through. And so this man goes through a very dangerous neighborhood. He gets beat down, robbed, left for dead. And Jesus begins to introduce the cast of characters. First, a priest, then the Levites. And they think they know where Jesus is going as he tells his story. They're probably thinking, uh, Jesus, we've heard this story before. And what they're probably expecting was some kind of anti-clergy, anti-religious person, anti-pastor hero to come on the scene. In other words, an ordinary Jewish person who was not part of the religious establishment. And the moral of the story would be that you don't have to be a priest or a Levite to love. Anyone can do it. But here again, Jesus blows their mind, flips the script. 
upsets their equilibrium. And Jesus introduces a Samaritan on the scene. And when he introduces the Samaritan, you can be sure that their eyebrows are lifted, their fists are clenched, and their blood is boiling. Let me explain. Our understanding of Samaritan is not what first century Jews had in mind. We have Good Samaritan Hospital. If someone found your lost wallet, we call that person a Good Samaritan, only if they give back the money as well. But in Jesus' time, the Samaritans were not a good people for the Jewish people. They were enemies. There was a, a mutual hatred of each other. They were very suspicious of each other. You see, in Judaism, Gentiles, sinners, and Samaritans were not even considered neighbors. The Samaritan was publicly cursed in their synagogues, excluded from the afterlife. There were phrases that went out like this, he who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. Or if you do good, know to whom you do it and do not help the sinner or Samaritan. And so Jesus is very intentional with this cast of characters. And he decides to use the Samaritan as a hero because by doing so, it exposed what was really in the heart of the religion professor. You see, the religious professor was looking for the hero to be someone who looked like him, someone from his neighborhood, someone who he agreed with about everything, but it turned out to be someone he despised. And the story is problematic to the religion professor because Jesus is using the Samaritan to describe what love, justice, and mercy look like. And here again, Jesus comes with the hard truth that it is impossible to love God and not be in loving relationship with another human being. That it is impossible to be moving towards God and simultaneously moving away from people. And we need to pause here for a moment because we live in a world where we believe it is possible to love God and not love your neighbor. To love God and to be apathetic and indifferent towards our neighbor. But if we're going to be a people marked by justice in the world, we have to recognize the correlation, the connection that is between loving God and loving our neighbor. That is, we cannot love God and say we don't love our neighbor. I like how Gabriela Mistral said it, a famous poet from Chile. And she said it this way. She said, I sought my soul, but I could not see. I sought my God, but he eluded me. I sought my brother and I found all three. What this poet is saying is that in our relationship with God and with others, that it's so connected that it's hard to distinguish where one stops and the other begins. And so Jesus goes on to explain how this Samaritan loved. And he contrasts it with the religious leaders of the day. Now let me explain what kept the religion leaders from showing love, mercy, and justice to this half-dead man. There are two, perhaps many other reasons why they moved away from this person. And I find that the, way, the reason they moved away is reasons we moved away as well. The first reason they moved away from this person was because of fear. This is something we need to pay attention to. Now, before the judge, the priest, and the Levite, let me refresh our memory about Jericho before I go into it. 
As some scholars have mentioned, the priests and Levites crossed the street or could have crossed the street because they feared that the people who hurt this man might still be around. That they might be around the corner and they can be and end up in a similar situation. And oftentimes, fear keeps us from showing love, justice, and mercy to the poor and powerless. And the question that we ask is, what's going to happen to me if I get involved in this? Some of us are asking that question, aren't we? When we see what's happening in terms of racial injustice and racial inequalities and the tensions that exist in our world, so many of us say, if I say something, what's going to happen to me? How will I be treated? How will people see me? Will I get canceled because I've raised my voice about something? And so they cross the street, avoid this man because of fear. And we have to note the ways that fear has a grip on our hearts, that fear keeps us from engaging in the issues of the day. But there's another reason why they don't help this man. The second is because they're absorbed in their work. They cross the street. They don't help because they were self-absorbed with their duties. Now, the irony is perhaps they were on their way to perform temple duties. And the irony of the whole thing in the story is that the priests were the public health officials. They were the leaders of the CDC back in the day. The Levites were distributors of alms to the poor. And chances are they were so preoccupied with their own status that they missed an opportunity to move towards this person in love. Or it might be that their pace of life was so wild that they passed this man and they had no space to encounter God in someone who was poor, someone who was taken advantage of, someone who needed help. It reminds me of a story I heard out of Princeton Theological Seminary. Princeton Theological Seminary undertook an experiment a number of years ago where a person in obvious pain and distress would lay on a path leading toward one of the lecture halls. And unbelievably, most people passed by him on their way to class, including the divinity students who were on their way to a class on the New Testament to study the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what they found in this exercise, this little thing they did was in their urgency to get somewhere, even if they're studying this very passage, that they could pass right by someone who desperately needs help. When we look at our lives, I think we have to recognize the moment that we're in. That to be people marked by justice means that we have to confront our fear. It means we have to recognize the ways that we get so self-absorbed with ourselves. It means we have to take stock of the pace of our lives to slow down for the sake of loving well. What does it mean to work for justice? What does it mean to be people marked in this way, this biblical virtue? Well, it means a couple of things. First of all, it means that we are people marked by compassion. What makes the story so shocking is that this is the Samaritan's opportunity to get payback. They're enemies. The man lay there half dead. The Samaritan has an opportunity, especially in light of their troubled conflicts, to 
finish the job, to, to kick him while he's down. But despite the conflict and differences, despite the pain and problems that they've experienced, despite the fact that they don't see eye to eye on many issues, despite the fact that come November, they'll be voting differently, despite the fact that they don't look the same, the Samaritan still decides to move towards this person with compassion. Dr. King said that the question the Levite asked was, what would happen to me if I helped this man? But the Samaritans flips the question and asks, what will happen to him if I don't help this man? That's compassion. And this is a shocking picture of justice and mercy. And the Samaritan's a good model for us to follow. The word compassion comes from two words, which means to, to suffer with. One of the most important aspects of discipleship is to teach people how to feel, how to enter into someone else's pain to suffer with, how to connect people when they're points of pain. But this requires that we first enter into our own pain. How can we be in touch with someone else's pain when we are so out of touch with ours? And so following Jesus requires us to deeply feel our own pain which helps us enter into the pain of others. You see, compassion is to lead us to listen for the cry beneath the cry, the pain beneath the pain, the story beneath the anger. And I have found that the work for justice and this notion of compassion applies to us across the board. And I have found that it applies to my own relationship with my wife in our marriage. Let me explain. My wife, Rosie, and I, we've been, uh, we've been married for 14 years. And I remember when we were going through a premarital class, uh, we were with a number of other couples just in love and going through this class, happy to get married and such. And we were sitting down, and I never forget, the, uh, the couple that was leading that premarital class got up and said, Everyone, I want to let you know something that might sound depressing. And the couple said, it's going to take you at least 10 years to learn how to be married. You're just getting started at 10 years learning how to be married. I said, this is, the, this is awful. But I looked at my wife, Rosie, and I said, babe, we'll do it in two. We'll do it in two. I gave her the fist bump. Mm, we'll do it in two years, baby. And so um, 14 years later, uh, here we are <laughs> trying to figure out this whole thing. And I realized that in our journey of marriage, that we get into trouble, specifically me, I get into trouble when I don't enter into the space that Rosie is in. And the reason I don't do that is because I have not done the work often of navigating through my own pain in such a way that I can enter into hers. You see, whenever conflict comes up, there's typically four modes that I go into, four modes that I go into. And I want to explain these four modes. And so not only are you going to get a sermon on justice, you're going to get a good sermon on marriage here as well. And say, so take good notes in the chat section, all right? Just where are you at? Take some good notes here. I have four modes that I go into when there's conflict. Or whenever Rosie's angry about something. The first mode I go into is computer mode. 
And I give Rosie a number of options. I say, honey, you don't have to be angry about that it's, or sad about that. It's all good. Here are three options you can do. This, this, or that. I want to tell you, this does not work. Let me just tell you that. The second mode I go into is uh, superimposing mode. Uh, if that was me, I wouldn't feel bad about that, honey. I wouldn't feel mad about that. Another thing that does not work at all. Take good notes. Put that in the chat right now. Don't do that. The third mode that I go into is minimizing mode, where I ask a question, babe, I, I noticed you're, but is it that bad? Or is it that serious here? A third thing that doesn't work out, put that in the chat as well. The fourth mode I go into is get out of their mode. And so, uh, honey, I'll be back. I'll, I'll be back. I'll be out of here and I'll come back here. So I, I, I did those four modes and they didn't work. And so in that order, I tried them and then I went to see a counselor in that specific order. And I see a counselor on a regular basis, a seasonal practice for me. I want to grow as a better leader, as a husband, as a father, as a preacher. And so I get a, a seasonal therapy from time to time. And so I go to see my counselor, just totally clueless as to how to navigate the reality whenever my wife feels angry or sad. And I say, listen, doc, uh, whenever she's angry about something, I, I go into these four modes and I just don't know what to do. And the doctor said to me, Rich, it's actually very simple. I want you to do one thing the next time your wife is angry. Next time she's sad. Whenever she's angry and I have my legal pad out, my pen ready. And I said, I'm listening. And he said, the only thing I want you to do is when she's angry, I want you to be angry with her. I said, what else you got? What else you got? What else you got? He said, that's it. He said, whenever she's sad, I want you to be sad with her. I said, come on, there's got to be more. He said, no, that, that's it. He said, of course, this doesn't work if she's angry with you, okay? <laughs> and if, it, it, there's nothing you can do at that point. But if she's just angry about something, I want you to be angry with her or be sad with her. And so I walked out depressed <laughs> from that doctor's appointment there with my therapist. But I said, I'm going to give it a shot. And so I was taking stock, taking inventory of my own anger, of my own sadness, so I could enter into hers and feel what she feels. A couple of weeks later, my opportunity came. She was angry. And thank God it wasn't with me. Amen. Okay. And so she was angry about something. And I thought my, my, my own emotional response was to go into those four modes of being, to, 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 to be a computer, to superimpose, to minimize, to get out of there. But, but I said, no, no, no. The doctor said, Whenever she's angry, to be angry with her. Whenever she's sad, to be sad with her. And so she's going off, she's angry about something. And it wasn't even this major issue what she was angry about. But I thought, this is my moment. My moment to shine. I'm going to step in. I'm going to be a good husband. And I don't even know what she was saying at that point, but she was angry, but not about something ma massive. And I thought, this is my moment. I'm not going to minimize, superimpose, get out of here, computer. I'm going to enter in. And in a disproportionate kind of a way, <laughs> I kind of interrupt her mid-sentence and thought, this is my moment. And interrupted her and said, she said, what? 
How dare she talk to you like that? Who does she think she is? And my wife is going, honey, calm down. No, no, calm down. It's all right, have some water. I'm like kicking the water. I don't want water. I don't want anything. We're going to drive over right now. We're going to fix this thing. And, and, and do you know what my wife felt at that moment? I want to tell you, she felt loved at that moment. <laughs> Finally, this man is not trying to be a computer. Finally, he's not trying to minimize or superimpose or just leave. Finally, he is entering into my own space. And I realize this is what compassion requires. That we have the ability to enter into the space of someone else. But it first requires us to feel our own pain as well. How can we enter in when we refuse to name what's happening on the inside? And so compassion, if we're going to be people marked by justice, we are called to be people marked by compassion. If we're gonna move forward with racial justice and racial reconciliation, it's often the case that many people begin with emotional distance and rationalizations. But the church is to enter into the pain of other people. Step in that space. And I want to tell you something. This, is, uh, this goes across to my church, to Liquid Church, to every church in this country, to every church in this world. That unless we are entering to someone's space, we're not going to truly do the work of justice. Which is why at the end of the day, diversity is not the goal. At the end of the day, proximity is not even the goal. At the end of the day, it's solidarity and compassion that's the goal. Because the truth of the matter is a church can be incredibly diverse. I have 75 nations represented in my church. And at the same time, you can be incredibly diverse, but not have compassion. And you can be proximate and experience close proximity to someone, but not have compassion. Being, being close to someone, a black friend, an Asian friend, a Latino friend, whatever it is, just because you are proximate to them does not mean you are automatically going down the road of compassion and solidarity. But what Christ invites us to is not just diversity for the sake of diversity, not just proximity for the sake of proximity. It's these things for the sake of compassion and solidarity. Amen. And so Jesus and this passage shows us how is justice done through compassion. But the second way it's done, and make sure you capture this as well. And right in the chat there, it's, it's advocacy as well. Advocacy. In Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, it says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of of the poor and needy. This is what the Samaritan does. Look at verse 34. It says, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You see, justice requires advocacy. 
Very simply, advocacy is the act of standing with people and representing them. And this is a deeply gospel thing to do. Jesus is known as our advocate. He represents us before the Father. He speaks to the Father on our behalf, and we are to be like Jesus, advocating for others. Now, this doesn't mean it has to be a major program. This can happen in so many different ways, big and small. I think of a woman in our church named Fatima who advocates for women who have experienced domestic violence. A new lifer named Jonathan who advocates for those experiencing racial injustice and economic poverty by engaging with college students for mission and through his work in poetry. I think of Red who leads our community development corporation to advocate for the poor in our local community. For a woman named, named Delia who advocates for teens helping them to find purpose and empowering them to be community organizers in Queens. Now, you might not know who to advocate for, but God does. And God would have, a, have us advocate first and foremost for the poor, for those treated poorly by society, practicing generosity, which means we have to educate ourselves about issues, which means we have to use the platforms that we have, whatever it might be. And when we do so, we are practicing profound ministry of justice. Every day you and I can do something in small and big ways. But the question that we must ask ourselves is, what is the motivation for this? What is the motivation to live a life marked by justice? And as we look at this text, the only way that we can go and do likewise is if we first recognize who we are in the story. You see, we must recognize that first and foremost, we are not the priest. First and foremost, we are not the Levites. First and foremost, we are not the Samaritan. First and foremost, we are the man who lay in the street half dead. At the end of the day, this story is not just about us being a good Samaritan. It's about us recognizing that we are in need of the Good Samaritan. Because at one point or another in our lives, we will find ourselves in a ditch. Life has a way of beating you up. And some of you right now, you're in an economic ditch, beat up by life. Some of you are in a relational ditch, beat up by life. Some of you are in a psychological ditch, a spiritual ditch, depressed and beat up by life. You and I are the person who lay there half dead. But the good news of the gospel is that God has come and the good Samaritan has come. And when we have been hurt by the robbers of the world, and when we have been overlooked and oppressed by the systems of the world, and when we have been passed by the religious establishment of the world, when there seems like there's not one person there to help, God in the person of Jesus Christ comes and washes our wounds. God comes and rescues us from our despair. God comes and suffers with us. God comes and raises us up. God comes and gives us new life. God comes and pays our debt. Jesus Christ is the true good Samaritan, the one who did not have to stop, but aren't you glad he stopped by? No matter who you are, no matter what ditch you find yourselves in, he stops by for you. 
And so in turn, as those who have been rescued by the compassion and advocacy of Jesus Christ, he says, look what I have done for you. Now go and do likewise. Not out of obligation necessarily, not out of duty, but out of love. Look at what I've done for you. Now go and do likewise. I started this sermon by talking about this guy who fell into a hole. And the lawyer walks by, the pastor walks by, all the people walk by, he's still in the hole. But the story ends this way, that a friend walks by and the man says, hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole and the guy says, well, that was stupid. Now we're both down here. And the friend says, yes, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. I want to tell you something. Jesus Christ knows the way out. He's been in the deepest holes you can ever imagine. The hole of sin and death. And the good news of the gospel is that he found the way out. And because Christ has found the way out, those who belong to Jesus Christ can help the world get out of the hole it's in. The truth of the matter is there's a lot of racial challenges in this world. Economic challenges in this world. Marital challenges in this world. Social injustice holes that we're in. But the good news of the gospel is very simply this. That Jesus has been down every hole. The deepest hole. And he rises up in great power. And in so doing, those who trust in him can participate with the life of the Holy Spirit. Working for a world that's marked by compassion. Working for a world that's marked by advocacy. Working for a world that's marked by justice. Working for a world that's marked by love. And as we begin to see who we are in this story, begin to see what God has done in our behalf, may we go and do likewise. Amen.